Welcome to Movies Inc, the business of film, here to inform and entertain on all things film business. I'm Sarah, founder of ES Collab, an executive producing and business affairs company based in New York. And I'm Charlotte, a film and theatre producer based in London. Each episode, we're joined by an awesome guest, producers, lawyers, executives or creatives who have been there, done that. They've made the big and small films, the films no one saw and the films everyone saw. And they're here to tell you all about the big and small mistakes they made, what they learned, and hopefully impart some advice about the business we call film. Our last episode, Charlotte. Week 10, here we are. Week 10. And what are we? What are we this week, Sarah? What are we? A 10 out of 10. Yes, because we're winners. We've been recognised for our work by... Someone. <laughs> Finally, after nine grueling weeks, week 10. We, we got we are, sponsored. We got sponsored slightly, so um, watch out. Yeah. Uh, it may mean gonna, that season two is on its way. I think I think we all know we're doing a season, season okay, two. Okay, fine. We're doing a season two. <laughs> you heard it first here, you folks. Um, and today's episode was very fun. Uh, to talk to these two amazing lawyers. Finally, Sarah got her wish and we got a couple of lawyers on the podcast so we could all talk about lawyering and Charlotte could say barely anything because I don't know much. And when I did speak, it was slightly embarrassing, but whatever. I love lawyers. And I'm (laughs) Yeah, don't we all love lawyers? Um, very grateful that they didn't bill us for their time. Oh my god, it was exactly one hour. Could you it was like they had a sixth sense that they'd been with us for one whole hour, and they both hung up the phone at the exact same time. <laughs> no, it was fab. <laughs> lawyers are very important in this business, as we know. They are. They are. They are. I feel like sometimes they are under underappreciated, or don't really people don't really realize uh, that they kind of hold the industry up in a way very they much. make sense out of chaos they tell people when they're wrong or they word things in such a way that maybe <laughs> no one's wrong and maybe no one's right and maybe we have to spend a lot more money on lawyers to understand which way is which <laughs> <laughs> it seems like you don't quite understand the importance of lawyers Charlotte. <laughs> um, all I know is that Adam Driver sacked his agent but retained his lawyer so obviously his lawyer is more important to him that's all I'm saying. Yes. You know what? It's not the first time I've heard of, you know, like talent saying that their lawyers do more for them than, than their agents. I mean, why pay twice? Just pay one person. Especially if you can get your own <laughs> gigs, you know. Yeah. I mean, if you're Adam Driver, people, you're probably getting like, you know, 10 offers People might want to get in touch with you. The other person who doesn't have an agent, which I discovered today, is Bill Murray. Famously, doesn't have an agent, doesn't have a phone. So if you want to hire Bill Doesn't Murray, very difficult. Didn't you do a – you did a film with Bill Murray. Yes, I did, but I didn't have his phone number or his email. <laughs> exactly. behind a screen. My point I is proved like, he does have no yeah, phone number. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the other thing to note is like a lot of the times with agents is it's sometimes that they might be representing more than one person on the same film. Yes. And so like if they're negotiating your deals, sometimes there might be a conflict of interest and even the same goes with managers. But with lawyers, they will only ever advocate for you. And so yes. they're the ones to rely on. We did talk about with this today in the interview as well, didn't we? How important that is. Yes. yes. Laura Dern in Marriage Story and only being allowed to represent one side of the divorce. 
which was the only yeah. way that I could understand this concept, everyone at home. Thank you, listeners. Um, but you shared an article with me that was very interesting about this point. Yeah, so the cop shop screenwriter sued zero gravity management for breach of contract because they were producers on a film. And um, they told him that the budget was much so they had a, lower than it was so that they could pay him yeah, way less they, for the script, which is hilariously stupid. Like, obviously, he's going to know how much the budget ended up being. Exactly. And also, like, if you have a conflict of interest, I feel like you should just understand you have a conflict of interest and maybe, like, disclose it to your clients. Is it enough to be like, there's a conflict? Or do you then have to go through, you have to get someone else on board? I don't know. I feel like if you have a conflict, you should definitely offer up, like... A third party. A new... Yeah, like a neutral third party, like a lawyer. They'll negotiate your talent deal for you. Right. But not only... As opposed to your manager. This producer is the guy who writes or executive produces and writes Ozark. So, so disappointing. And he tried to steal the writing credit from this guy as well. I just feel like in this day and age, maybe don't. Maybe don't. Maybe don't. Good point. Good point. (laughs) Good points all around. Good points. Also, do we have you heard anything about ScarJo? What's the deal with that lawsuit? Basically, it just says they settled. So who knows? But oh, good on her know. for bringing Ooh. this. I know it was such big news in Hollywood last year when she brought that suit against Disney because they put Black Widow up onto streaming on the same day, day and date releases. Black Widow, which meant obviously the box office at the theaters. I mean, not obviously. Disney was saying no, not obviously because it was a very soft market. But obviously, that impacted ScarJo's back end deal where she gets yes. some some box office bonus for a big um, showing. I think it made three hundred and seventy, either domestically or worldwide. I can't. I don't know. But thousand. <laughs> Or million. Million. <laughs> okay, good. Million. But like, you know, as, we, as we've talked about all the time, Spider-Man made a billion Spider-Man. in nine days. So yes. I'm not saying Black Widow. I don't know if I would compare Black Widow to spider It was Spider-Man, never going to do exactly the same amount. But no. Anyway, good on her for bringing that suit because she got uh, a lot of flack from Disney and they had this weird PR cam- campaign against her saying, Oh, why are you complaining about $20 million when people are dying of COVID? <laughs> and her agents, to be fair, came <laughs> out swinging at that because they were like, uh, no, it's not about that. It's about the contract. Look at the contract. You are in breach. So good on her yeah. lawyers. They obviously did some kind of settlement. We'll never know the details, but um, lawyers are important. I will say it's actually changing the way things are done because, like, I'm on a film now at the moment where the agents, uh, like, everyone's pre-negotiating what happens if you have a day-and-date release um, and, like, how those box office bonuses are treated. Yeah. Well, they have to. With streaming bonuses and that sort of stuff. That's a precedent now, I guess. But does that mean that we get to see... We get to see those figures because, at the moment, they're pretty tightly held by the streamers, so... Maybe only the lawyers mm. will ever see it and us film fans will not. But let's get on with Marcy and Sasha because yes, it's quite a long episode. Sorry, listeners. I know you don't like it when it's over 30 minutes. Stop being in the DMs about it. It's fine. This is really interesting. Nothing in this episode should be constru- construed as legal advice purely for your entertainment purposes. Only. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> For that very... For clarifying. Yeah. Um, Okay, so 
Today we have Sasha Levitz and Marcy Cleary, who are partners in the entertainment group of Frankfurt Kernet Klein and Seltz, representing clients in the film, television, digital, theater, and publishing industries. Before joining Frankfurt Kernet, Sasha worked for Film Nation and MTV in business and legal affairs, and Marcy was a corporate associate at Paul Weiss, advising the likes of WME, Silver Lake, and Apollo Global Management. They've been recognized by Best Lawyers in America as Ones to Watch and Super Lawyers Magazine as a rising star, as well as by Variety and The Hollywood Reporter. Woohoo, Super Lawyers! <laughs> I'm going to subscribe. What a fabulous title. Sasha, Marcy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Uh, just to get us started, would you mind telling us a bit about who you are and what you do? Marcy, take it away. Okay. I'll start, you know, when you say who you are, one thing that Sasha and I have in common is we're both from the South. I'm from Tennessee and Sasha's from Georgia. So my accent is very different than yours. <laughs> uh, Quite. <laughs> but uh, so, so we are entertainment attorneys. Um, we're both partners at Frankfurt Kernet Klein and Sells, a media and entertainment uh, law firm based in New York and Los Angeles. My practice is specifically for creators. So I represent talent, like actors, comedians, on-air folks. I represent writers, directors, producers, book publishers, and podcasters. And, you know, traditionally you would give that long list. And now I just shorten it by saying I represent creators because true creators do everything. So the list just gets longer and longer of things that I do because I I go where the clients take me. Um, So in short, I would say I represent creators and I do their deals. I'm a transactional lawyer. So I help um, when they get an offer, I help negotiate the deal terms and then the contract when it comes in. Amazing. And you did that. You were at another law firm before Frankfurt as well. Yeah, I was. Yeah. So I started my career at a firm called Paul Weiss um, that's based in New York, huge law firm. And I was doing entertainment work, but entertainment corporate work, mergers and acquisitions. So when you see like these private equity firms buying into William Morris Agency, for example, um, I would do those type of deals. Okay. Amazing. Cool. Sasha. Hi, I'm Sasha. Um, like Marcy said, I'm a partner at Frankfurt Kernet. Um, and like Marcy said, I'm a Southerner, although I'm a little bit of a funny case because I'm from Savannah, but born in New York. So I have a nice combo of Southern charm and New York edge, which I think is very, <laughs> it's, it's, it's helped me in my legal career. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'd say, you know, I do similar work to what Marcy does, but we have different areas of focus. You know, like her, I also represent creators. Um, but specifically writers, directors, producers, I actually don't work with any on-screen talent. Um, the other areas in which I work are representing rights holders, mostly high-level rights holders, like big estates or literary mm-hmm. agencies and, and publishers. Um, I also work on kind of all aspects of film deals. So I do a little bit of financing, a little bit of production legal in the documentary space, Um, a lot of distribution work and a lot of representing production companies in their development, production and financing work across kind of all aspects of what they do. Um, What else? My background is really in the independent film world. I've been at Frankfurt Kernet for, I think, going on about eight years now. But before that, I was at Film Nation. 
Yeah, it makes me feel old yeah. and like, I don't understand <laughs> how time works. <laughs> Marcy's but been she there looks, longer. Uh, 22. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, we, uh, we look 22. Yeah. If you could see us, you would really be shocked. <laughs> we do, although I have to say recently I went back and I looked at a picture of Marcy and I at our first Sundance together in, I don't even know, 2015 or something. And we really did look 22 then. Aged a few years since. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so I came from independent film background. I had been at Film Nation for three years in-house before I came to Frankfurt Kernet. And that's where I just became, you know, growing up as a kid, I was obsessed with the film world. But I think there was where I really solidified that obsession. And I loved um, working internationally, which is what we really did at Film Nation when I was there, when it was really yeah. just like a sales and distribution company. Um, but yeah, so that's how I ended up where where I am today alongside Marcy. Amazing. What's one thing that you both wish you had been given a heads up about before you came into the film industry? You know what I wish I knew? How often things would change. Yep. You know, I don't think <laughs> I expected that. And it's, that's why it's funny. We've been working a while in this industry, but not that long, right? Like I'm not 70 years old and like you hear those war stories and people be like, well, back in our day, you know, the deals are done. Yeah. And now I'm saying that I'm like, well, it used to be. So that's one thing that I think is fascinating, especially like creators is interesting. The industry changes so yeah. much. Um, so for instance, when I started 10 years ago or, or a little bit more than that, the film industry was dominant, right? Like it was all about features. And then the television industry got really big and you had to really know television deals. And like all the film folks were now doing television writer deals. So you had to explain to them the yeah. difference. And now I represent a whole bunch of television writers and now I'm explaining to them film deals. And I have this huge business in podcasting. And when I started learning how to do podcast deals. I hate it because I, I would tell my colleagues, this is a dead end business. You know, it's like there's no money in it. That was what, four years ago, Sasha? This was crazy. It's not that long ago where I was like, oh, and now everybody's like, oh, you know, they say, oh, you're the podcast queen. And I would say, well, you stop saying that. And now everyone's like, you're the podcast queen. And I'm like, yeah, you know, like, I think I wish I realized how quickly things change and that you'll be learning so much all the yeah. time. Yeah, I t totally agree with Marcy. And, and the way I've really been noticing it is when we're doing deals within the same medium, but now the platforms that we're dealing with are so different and they structure their deals so differently that I could have done a deal with even Netflix three years ago that looks completely different from a deal with Netflix today. And you're yeah. just constantly having to stay on top of this evolution and the changes in, what, in the ways that people are structuring their deals and, you know, being on top of working with platforms that come out of nowhere, like people doing TV shows for TikTok. I mean, sometimes it's just hard to wrap your head around these things. But as Marcy said, it is, I think we always expected that being a lawyer in this space would be a very, very educational, educational experience, but it is educational in, in a way that I had never imagined. Yeah. Cause that actually leads to like a question that we were going to ask way, way later on, but how good do you think lawyers and business affairs people are at keeping up with emerging technologies? Because people are using NFTs now to finance their films. And right. I'm finding myself reading about NFTs a lot and trying to wrap my head around that. Well, you know what it is? 
you don't have a choice yeah. is what happens. Because I'll <laughs> tell you, NFTs is a great example. When that became a thing, you know I tried to ignore that so much. You know, I was just like, you know, in three months, <laughs> this will not be a thing. And that's where you start to feel old, when you resist change, you know? Um, and so I was like, oh, I don't need to learn about that. Like, there'll be two colleagues at our firm who we have, and they are the best NFT folks in the world. Like how I learned about podcasting early on, they learned about NFTs early on. And I was just like, they got it. If I ever have a question, I'll just call them. And I can't get away with it. I was literally just texting an agent to ask them, how do they commission NFT deals? Because I just have to wow. figure it out. You know, like, so it's kind of when you say, how good are we at learning? I do think that, you know, it's sometimes you can be resistant to change like how I was of like, not another trend. That's how it feels, you know, <laughs> but really it's what I said. Somebody should have told me at the beginning, you're going to be learning different things all the time. And now that was just a new thing I have to learn. And so now we're learning it. And now all the lawyers are learning it. So like how I was the only one doing podcast deals. Now everybody's in the group are doing podcast deals. You don't have a choice. you got to adapt yeah. to it. And I think, Sarah, I think your question was, you know, how good are business affairs and lawyers at, you know, learning these things? Well, I think it's really the ones who learn it are the good ones, you know, the ones who take the time to, yes. you know, drill down into these issues that we really have no awareness of and no understanding of and really figure it out are the best lawyers and the best business affairs people because they're the ones that can look at things with a very broad perspective and broad understanding of how all the pieces fit together and how, you know, one right impacts another right and it might impact your client's ability to do something or the studio's ability to do something. And, and that's what we are striving to do as lawyers, to have that really broad, full understanding of every aspect of a deal for our clients. So, you know, it's important to us that we do stay on top of these things and that we we are aware. And I think that's something, you know, not to toot Frankfurt Kernet's horn, but I think that's something that our firm is very good about because, and I think part of it is because, you know, we're not just an entertainment firm. We our, our practices are, and our practice groups are much broader than that. And like Marcy said, we have people here who focus on NFTs and blockchain technology. So when these issues start coming up with the film world, we actually have resources to go to. And I think that's kind of unique to us. Um, and it's just beneficial to us as lawyers because we have so many people and to learn from and so many areas in which we we, you know, someone at our firm excels. Yeah. I think the thing is like people often coming from a producer point of view, when we pick up the phone to a lawyer, you you have to know the answer or, or at least have a, a way to work it out because we're like, you're our lifeline. And if you blink, it, you know, freaks right. people out. So obviously that's what you need to do for your clients is go, yeah, yeah, we got it. Oh my God. Right. <laughs> work this out. What do we do? That is, <laughs> let and me, work it out. Right, let, it's let all me, behind the scenes. Let me get back to you. Will you yeah. hear that? You know, yeah, there's, yeah. Some, there's some studies. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Cause um, yeah, you go. Um, no, you go. Oh yeah, you go. No, you go. Yeah, you no, move I was going to move No, on, I so don't. I don't have another, another okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just wanted to ask, uh, what are the things that creatives and producers, regardless of their level of experience, tend to overlook or not take into account um, in the early stages of production or throughout? I mean, overlook or not take into account. Well, I think obviously people tend to be fixated on the financials because that's the most easily digestible part of any deal. Um, 
I think, you know, obviously the creative is very important, you know, maintaining some sort of creative control. I'd say those are the things that, you know, if we have a client and we're going into a new deal for a writer or director, those are the things that they think about. But there are so many other things that go into deal making. Um, One of the things that I think Marcy and I are always particularly concerned about is, you know, what happens um, if something goes wrong? You know, how do we protect clients so that they don't get fired off of films or if they do get fired off of films, you know, do they get paid out? What are the what are the ramifications there? Do they still end up with their credit? Um, you know, what happens if COVID shuts down a production and they're, ha- you know, suspended for many, many months? Can yeah. they go work on something else? What happens if there's a claim brought against a project that they write? You know, we are really thinking about, obviously, we want them to get the most money possible and have the most creative control. But those are kind of the easiest things to think about. We also have to think about all these other problems that can happen and, you know, how we best protect our clients in those situations. Yeah. And you know what totally. else I think um, people don't realize is that especially when filmmakers and producers are putting projects together with their friends, is that that friendship just changed into a business yeah. relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a hard thing to wrap your head around. And so you overlook the fact that that friendship just changed. I'm sorry, you know, when you started working together. And so that's why like when we start working with the first time creators putting together indie projects, the first thing we start talking about are agreements that we call shopping agreements and attachment agreements or collaboration agreements. And they're just like two or three pages, but it outlines the relationship. Like, it, you know, I call it the prenup because it says, <laughs> yeah. okay, what happens if we disagree on creatives or business decisions? Who has the tie break vote? How are we gonna deal with the money? Is everything 50-50 or everybody's gonna go in and negotiate on themselves? You know, so I would say that's something that people skip that step and they just go straight to the marriage. And then they realize that's a business marriage they just yeah. entered into, and it, and then they realize it when they get their business divorced. I'm like, oh man, I should have uh, recognized at the beginning that this would have been a lot easier. If we just sat down and worked out what our business relationship yeah. looks like. I think. I mean, how many times, Marcy, have we talked about this? That frankly, the most difficult and frustrating deals that we ever do are unraveling these issues that come out of yep. people either not doing a collaboration agreement or not getting their roles and their participation straight before they actually dig into a project, they they often lead to, yep. you know, real issues and are nightmares to unravel. And we're constantly trying to counsel our clients, let's just sit down and think about these issues before you actually get into development and production. And That's right. It will be better. Well, but Because when it's ready to deliver the film or if you get a distributor, they're going to want all the yeah. paperwork, right? Like, you know how you'll get your friends to act in it? Like your friends are, oh, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know, whoever, yeah, yeah. Halle, you know, Halle Berry said it's no problem. Really? She said it's no problem? Do you have it in yeah. writing? You know, and that's you're like, oh, man, I should have realized, you know, I overlooked the fact that this friendship turned into a business relationship when we started working together. Yeah. The number of times people have been like, oh, I didn't really think to, you know, like we're friends. It would just never come That's to right. that. But it, right. it, it will come to that. It will come it will. to that. Totally. <laughs> so thinking about everything that's happened with Alec Baldwin and Rust and um, traditionally everyone sort of, or at least I have always thought that, you know, the producer is responsible for what happens on set and specifically the rights holding entity. But now with everyone sort of 
taking like a very like in-depth look at that production and who's getting what credits, is it that actors that let's say get an EP credit now have to think about, well, what's my liability if because I've got that EP credit and on the surface of it, it looks like maybe I have a greater involvement than I actually do or an investor who you know, finances 25% of the budget, but doesn't actually have any sort of real decision-making power when it comes to like production logistics. Is there, like, is this something that people should now be thinking about? That's interesting. Okay. So I would say the, actually why it doesn't matter what your title or role is on the production, you've got to have ownership and understand the importance of what you do is because in your agreements there are indemnity provisions and what the indemnity says is that you'll be responsible and hold the other the production company harmless and not liable for your actions right so if you obviously breach the agreement like if he didn't show up and was late for work and it caused a whole mess um but even more importantly your negligence right or your misconduct that created an issue on set, right? So I think what, you know, there is the question about him producers interest and we should get to that, but I think there just has to be that recognition because you sign things so quickly, you know? And this is why we always say, get a lawyer to make sure you know what you're Mm -hmm. signing. But everybody probably signed an indemnity that said that if something happens that's a result of my actions, I'm liable for that, right? So. That's like the first thing you have to. So that's why everybody's asking about who's at fault. You see, that was like the first thing that like even the news reports, everybody was trying to figure out because that person's going to be held liable as far as being. Oh, go ahead, Sasha. Well, I was just going to add to that, too, and, and say, you know, I think to Marcy's point, um, it doesn't really matter who you are, what your credit is. If a production's going to get sued people who are going to get sued are, you know, the named producer, potentially the lead actors, just because they're named, um, the production company and any, and any money behind it. I mean, people will try and sue whoever they can, because you you look at, you're going to sue pockets. You're going to sue the deep pockets. You're going to sue the deep pockets. But then to Marcy's point, what really matters is looking at who was actually responsible and what their agreement says about their their liability and their obligations to indemnify the producers in the production. So yes, it might mean something to the people um, who have these producer credits in terms of whether when a pl- claim gets brought, who is it brought against. But at the end of the day, what yeah. matters is what's actually in the agreements, what their obligations right. were, how they breached those obligations, and what their obligation is to defend. Um, the production yep. in the event of a claim. And you know what else you've got to be careful of? And this is the second part that if you're not a lawyer, you don't know to look for is you need to be covered by the production insurance. So in yep. addition to the indemnity, what we look for as attorneys is that you're covered by the production insurance. So it's important, one, that you're indemnified. So let's say Alex didn't have anything, Alex didn't have anything to do with this. Then he wants to make sure he's indemnified by production for any breaches that or any incidents that happen because of their breach. But then also you want to make sure you're covered by the production insurance. And that's key because the insurance is who will cover everybody when you get sued. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, that's another thing for the indie filmmakers. When you're making these projects, you got to get production insurance to help. Now, production insurance is going to ask these same questions. Who's at fault, right? Because they don't want to have to pay out a huge claim if y'all were negligent on set, right? But you want to make 
make sure that you have that production insurance. That's so uh, yeah. so interesting. I didn't know that that those clauses in you know the liability. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. But that's but it's why, actually the if yep. you're negligent, then yep. it, it doesn't matter whether you own the production yep. or put money in or whatever. But that's why you see on the news how they're saying who, you know, why did he shoot the gun? You know, who was the one who handed him the gun? You know, was he supposed to know, you know, that it was loaded? Yeah. And they're all, and why is Alec doing this interview saying I had no idea? It's because the indemnity and the insurance provisions are directly related to those yeah. issues. It's so sad. I mean, the whole thing is just, is crazy. We, we, we were just talking about it before because that's fascinating. I think today or yesterday, the yeah. armorer is suing the the supplier of the the dummy rounds because obviously they weren't dummy rounds and and in That's in right. that oh wow I hadn't in seen the that. documents I guess that were wow. filed it says she said I didn't see that gun for 15 minutes because of COVID protocols I had to hand it over and I didn't see it for that 15 minutes whilst it was on set with the first right. AD and then with Alec and then the accident happens and you're the armorer sitting outside going fuck that was why wasn't I there but yeah it's just incredibly obviously like devastating to, for everyone to have yep, witnessed that and for someone is. to have lost their life yeah. over a film. Not the first time. What is the most obvious non-essential skill you bring to your job? Oh, I've got a good one. You know it, and I've learned it recently. I've, I'm very empathetic. Um, and I realized as I became a more senior lawyer how important that is because when people come to you with situations they need help, the first thing you, as a human being, you say, is this person crazy? You know, how did you get in this situation? Yeah. And you you kind of judge them, especially as a know-it-all lawyer. You know, you're like, well, you should have done this. You should have had a shopping agreement, an attachment agreement. You should have been on the production insurance. And I realized you're not helping anybody starting from that perspective. So what I do is, you know, since my cause, I, I say, oh, man, I didn't have an attachment agreement. You know, like I just literally put myself in their shoes. It helps me advocate for folks better too, because I'm not judging the client. I'm like, this is yeah. me. You know, I, I'm literally kind of putting myself in their shoes and even emotionally trying to understand where they're coming from. So what I tend to do when I talk to clients is I make them tell me the whole story, you know, and, t- and they'll say, oh, I don't know if you need to hear all that, but I, I do because I'm really trying to get myself in your head is what I always say. It's like, let me understand what you're thinking and the more you tell me the better I can help figure out what you're thinking what's going to be a good solution for you but also make sure you're protected so that I think I've realized in the last few years and maybe COVID and the pandemic helped and everybody going through similar situations where we all I think are more empathetic with each other Um, but I think that's been a huge skill for me um, and helping advocate for my clients even better. And mine's going to be kind of similar. I mean, I was going to say that bef- back in my childhood, when I thought about my, I guess I shouldn't say my childhood, but my teen years, my college years, when I was thinking about what I wanted to do, it was always working in film. But if it wasn't working in film, I wanted to be a therapist and I wanted to sit in a big chair and listen to people tell me their hopes and their dreams and what made them tick and what made them frustrated and sad and upset and Frankly, that is so much of what we do as lawyers. Um, you know, I can't, I can't tell you how many of my clients thank me on a daily basis for also being their therapist, <laughs> yeah. which is not really a part of the job. But kind of to Marcy's point, it it is also a very important part of the job because 
we really need to understand, you know, where our clients are coming from, how they feel about a certain point or a certain project um, or a certain issue that we're dealing with and in an interpersonal issue with a collaborator or an issue with the studio. And a lot of that just comes out of talking. You know, you don't drill down to these in these issues by just looking at an agreement and talking yeah. about three bullet points. It's really about knowing who your client is, understanding what makes them tick, understanding what's so important to them and why. Because typically when you're working with it, if you're working with a director and he's having a blow up with a studio, you know, about his cutting rights, it's because something happened on his last film that really, you know, impacted them in, in a particular way and, and influenced, you know, where they are today. And, you know, is is it's important to have that whole backstory and to understand um, kind of every aspect of your client's life and history and precedent so that you can really be the best advocate for them. So it really is what Marcy said. It's being empathetic. It's listening. It's really getting to know your clients and not just being transactional. I think our jobs would be a lot easier and less time consuming if we just looked at paperwork, marked up paperwork and sent it out. But that's not that's not yeah. what being an entertainment lawyer is or being a good entertainment lawyer is. When when should people call their lawyer? When how often do they call? Do they call too much or do they call too little in your experience? <laughs> it depends on the client. Um, I have I some, say they balance, yeah. they balance themselves out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have some clients who clients who call, I don't want to say way too much, but who call very often. Mm -hmm. And I have others who I'm constantly saying, why didn't you tell me about this? You should have told me about this. I would have been able to help you. So it's really, yeah. it's a really balance. Um, I don't think there's any right answer for how often you should be in touch with your lawyer, but I'd say err on the side of being in touch more often than not, because we can help you avoid issues that you might get into or problems that you might get into had you not called us in the first place. My rule of thumb is do not sign anything before yes. I look at it. And it doesn't mean I'm going to negotiate it or over negotiate it. Sometimes I may say it's fine. And you could be even on set Let's say it's a release. You can text me a picture of it. I said, just please do not sign anything before you talk to your lawyer. That's like my at the very least. And then like people kind of ask, you know, when do I need a lawyer? The other thing you should think about, if somebody gives you an offer to do a job, that's about the right time to reach out. What's interesting and different about entertainment lawyers is we're actually business lawyers. So we help negotiate the money. Um, exclusivity is super important, like what your creative rights are. So don't wait. Like some people just negotiate the deal and then call you. But I would say, oh, you lost half of the value that we bring because we're really helpful in actually negotiating deal terms. So I say, like if you have an offer come in, that's a good time to reach out um, to an attorney. And then if you're putting a project together, I would say before you turn that camera on, make sure you've talked to somebody yeah, um, because it's hard sure. to rewind things like Sasha mentioned earlier. Marcy, I have a specific question for you. I'm really interested in the competing interests, with, specifically with comedians, um, with cancel culture how are comedians able to balance the competing interest of like creative liberty 
versus, you know, networks and streamers wanting to keep a fence to a minimum. It's so hard. I mean, I don't know if you saw Steve Harvey just a couple of days ago was doing a TCA for his new show, a media presentation. And he said, because of cancel culture, he said, I will not do another special because, you know, he's a stand up comedian. And so they, he said, I will not do another special until I'm ready to retire because he <laughs> said, I just I'm controversial. He said, Mike, I have to talk about people. He said, that's what makes us funny is that we talk about people. And he said, he was like, I know I'm going to get canceled whenever my next special comes. So he said, I'm not doing it till I'm done. And he said, he's going to name the special. Well, this is it. (laughs) (laughs) And it made me laugh so hard. It is tough because it's funny. I remember going to... um, comedy festivals like just for laughs in montreal and they have the new faces where it's for breakout comedians and they do um performances and the people who got the largest laughs like i mean people just dying are the people who said things were so offensive and just you were just shocked it was shocking you know let's let you say that shock culture and you were just like oh my gosh did they just say that and people were just dying and so it is a little it's different you know because you it's it's good and bad, and you see me hesitating because in him and in hawing because that's how co- I feel like comedians feel too. Yeah, that very fine line. It's that uh, that's arbitrary and can move quite easily for different people. It sucks. You know? I mean, because you don't want to create a culture where it's okay for people to say things that are racist and sexist and homophobic. Like, and I think that's what's great about this generation is that that's not acceptable. Um, but I did like how Steve Harvey said it is comedy is funny because you're talking about people, you know, and you're saying the things that people are thinking and don't want to say out loud of like, did you really just do that? You know, um, so I think it. the good thing about it is it has forced comedians yes. to be more creative and more thoughtful. Right. And you can't just, you know, people are no longer the punchline, you know, like it's more about situations. And I think that's really positive and probably more mm. healthy. Um, but it is such a tight rope when traditionally comedy has been really to say things, you know, you say the things that are shocking, um, is really how it was. But I, you know, one thing that, um, comedy writers and stand-ups are doing now, they're writing for television. I know if you'll see like all the new television shows are comedies. So a lot of them are becoming staff writers and writers rooms for all these shows that are NBC and ABC and really mainstream. So a lot of them have been able to, you know, really kind of still be funny and be interesting and creative by writing for television. And the true stand-ups are still performing, but they are a little bit more sensitive. But I think most of my comedians are just like, we're just going to stay true to ourselves and yeah. see what happens. You know, and like Steve Harvey said, well, <laughs> this is it. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. Also super interesting because, I mean, the other thing is, is it's like, what is acceptable now? You can't predict the future, right? So what is acceptable to us That's now right. might not necessarily be acceptable to us in 10 years. And there's or agreements and there's year. deals. Yeah, or even, a, yeah, exactly. And those, those deals are still in place by that point. Yeah. How far back can you go 
through someone's Twitter in order to cancel them. <laughs> like, is there Apparently a statute there's of no limitations? Limit. There's no limit. <laughs> there's no limit. It's there so isn't. funny. I even ran through my Twitter the other day. I was like, well, have I said anything? You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm, you know, happy to confirm I did. I had not, but, you know. You I'm always scared that they're going to go back. Do you remember on Facebook, maybe when it started? I mean, I, it started the first year I was in college in 2004, and, and, you know, you used to do those statuses, what am I doing now? And mine was always something very dramatic, which was inspired by heartbreak, usually. Uh, but that's that's when I'm actually scared it's going to get out there somehow. Terrifying. So imagine if you were tweeting, you're just like, my goodness. So I feel like a lot exactly. of things resolve. Like, I just am who I am. You know, Kevin Hart, you know, I was so disappointed when he didn't host the Oscars. Um, but he was just like, you know, like, you know, I have said crazy things. I should not have said it. You know, that was part of my fiber. My being was saying crazy stuff. I realized that was inappropriate. You know, a part of it is just you have to sell people for their um, for their humanness and, and help, you know, help them to grow instead of cancel them to grow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Advice by Mossy. Help them to grow. <laughs> As we said, therapists. Yeah. So as entertainment lawyers, you're always working alongside agents or opposite agents. And um, I think we were both curious to know, is there anything that you've learned over time that's helped in your negotiations with different talent agents in, in kind of different capacities? I mean, I think one thing I've learned is that agents want to be in the loop. They want to be involved in what's going on and they actually want help. They just don't always ask for it. So I think, you know, Marcy said she loves agents. I think we've actually, certainly I've had negative experiences working with agents, but I've had a, a lot of positive experiences working with agents, especially the good ones. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's really about learning to work with them and how to work as a team and what their strengths are and what your strengths are and how you put those together. I mean, I think Marcy mentioned earlier, you know, agents were, are usually focusing on the big ticket items in a deal, the financials, the, you know, term if it's applicable, sometimes the exclusivity, but usually not even going there. And I think it's really about, you know, kind of getting them to sit down and focus on everything um, or at least what they can really help with. And then just working as a team. It's just about figuring out like how to bounce ideas off of each other and some agents are different than others. Some agents want to be, you know, in on every phone call. And some agents want, just want to do what they have to do, which is getting the ju- getting the opportunity in the first place and weighing on in the big ticket items. And then they want to take more of a back seat. So it's really just about getting to know the particular personalities on each team that you're working with and, and dealing with it that way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Marcy, what do you think? Yeah. I think that was genius. When you said about really you complement each other, you know, the agent and the lawyer, that's what you want. I'll say what I like about agents and their roles is their jobs is to package. And we know that we talk about, you know, that's been controversial with how they're paid for packaging. But I would say that what's um, great is that their jobs are to put things together, right? So if you have an idea, your producer, they'll go find the director. If you're the director, 
They'll go find a screenwriter for you. Like they have a lot of resources mm-hmm. and are helpful in putting people together. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's huge. And then that's what I always say. It's great to have an agent, but go get you a lawyer too. Because it's what Sasha said about we really focus on the details. Make sure you're protected. And our loyalty is only to you. Totally. You know, we don't represent right. that screenwriter or that director if it'll be a conflict of interest. We, you know, so so we are the ones who can say, okay. That's a great package, but how does it affect right. you? And so that really what I would say is if you feel like, you know, or it makes you wary that the agent is putting, you know, they represent everybody on the project or, you know, you feel that way, go get you a lawyer because they'll just compliment that agent and make sure they're protecting right. you. I think that the other thing that I find really beneficial about working with agents and kind of the same rings true for managers, um, they both kind of fill the function that I'm about to talk about is that you know, when we are working on a deal and we are maybe on, you know, we're negotiating the main deal points and we're maybe two issues open and we are at a standstill with the business affairs executive or the lawyer at the studio who just won't budge, it's going to be the agent or the, or the manager who's going to back channel with a creative team and, you know, figure out a way right. to move on that point through the creative relationships, which we don't have usually. So, you know, there have been Mm -hmm. deals that I've been on that wouldn't have closed at the level they closed at without that agent or manager who had that relationship with the creative and was able to push through those final points. So that's somewhere where we see them be of huge value. Um, And, you know, I think it it definitely sometimes even just that is enough to make to make their participation worth it. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, Marcy, just going back on your point about conflicts and as the only person without a law degree in this conversation, this might be a really obvious question. But so you if if you represent the director of a project, you your firm can't also represent. Well, we can't be adverse to each other. Right. That's what it is. So if the director is engaging the screenwriter or if the screenwriter is bringing on the director and you have to negotiate terms against each other or to, you know, when I say against each other, it's just you're on other sides of that paper. That's when we that's a conflict. But if we're all against Lionsgate, that's different. Okay. You know, like <laughs> we can team up and both be negotiating our deals against Lionsgate. That's a different adverse party, right? right? And so um, where you're concerned with when somebody's putting together a project is if this producer who's wrapped by this agent or this lawyer is hiring the director or the screenwriter. You know, y'all are adverse at that point. But what if you already represent both those parties like on retainer or do they then you, someone um, has... can be, well, now you get, you're going to law school. Okay. So do you don't have to go to but... law school. It's fine. <laughs> But there are times when there's conflict waivers that can be obtained for you to represent maybe one side against the other. But traditionally, like, we don't really want to do that. Um, so, you know, there's other, I mean, this is, is nuanced. Like, we could be Scribners is what it's called when, like, y'all decide on what the relationship will be. You decide on the deal terms. I don't advocate for one right. party against mm-hmm. the other, right? And then you come back to us and we just paper it. But the real thing you have to, the real, I guess the non-law school headline is, Lawyers are not going to be adverse to you, you know, not unless there's some you have some specific exception that you've done in writing that says it's okay. But our default is not to be in a position against you. Great. (laughs) 
it's always in movies like I'm just thinking of Laura Dern in a marriage story where she sends Scarlett Johansson out to meet every lawyer in LA so that they can't yeah. <laughs> her husband can't use them as his divorce lawyer. I was I just like, about that. this is all I'm seeing. Laura Dern is spectacular <laughs> in that film. I assume that's what all entertain. Uh, no, I just what all lawyers at a high level look like so all funny. the time. <laughs> I wish that's what I look like all the time. After a sixteen-hour day, just in those, you know, Louboutins. exactly. <laughs> yeah. What advice would you give producers about obviously balancing, um, balancing creative autonomy with then financier expectations and controls? Um, that are there to minimize risk for the financier? Like how do you come to a happy middle for both? I mean, that's a tough question because really it's what are you negotiating in the deal with the financier? Because those deals obviously are going to set forth very specifically what the controls are um, and what the decision-making mechanisms are. And I think, you know, I always just advise my clients Focus on the creative issues. You know, you're a producer. Your your goal is to make the film that you came here to make, um, and to protect you know your create and the your and the filmmaker's creative vision. Um, you know, if we have to do something to you know get the financier on board or agree to something that you don't want to agree to, there are creative ways to do it. You know, if it comes to a financier having approval over cast, but it's also incredibly important that the director has approval over the cast. Can we come together and come up with a pre-approved list of 15 names that everyone agrees on? And then the director can pick which one he wants from that list. Um, you know, I think it's just about coming up with kind of creative, creative solves for anything that the, the producers and the financiers might be quibbling over. But you know, at the end of the day, it's just always going to be a negotiation. There's no one thing or the other that we'll always be able to accomplish in a deal. So it's just about knowing who you're working with, what's important to them and what's important to your side and trying to come up with the best solution possible. I wish I could say like, this is the, this is what we could do on every deal to make it the best for everyone, but we can't because it's so situational. And you'll have, you know, it's also just about knowing what your leverage points are and what leverage you yeah. have. That's what is great about a lawyer is, you know, I always say, like, we represent the very top filmmakers, right? Like Academy Award winning filmmakers and the first timers. And so we have that perspective. So we know you're not going to get that deal immediately, but we work with you to get there. Right. right? And also just to give you that context. So, you know, OK, even, you know you know, this huge star as a huge filmmaker isn't getting this, you know, or they are, and this is how, what it took to get there. But here are places that we can be creative and get you for you and protect you um, even early on in your career. But I will say what's cool is we represent the biggest stars, but also the first time creators. And we just know how to get you there, know like what your leverage points will be. And we think creatively to get, to make sure you're protected. Yeah. Nice. No, I I would say that Frankfurt is my favorite firm that I've worked with. Please Aww, make sure that's yeah. in the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so I think we're up to mm -hmm. our final question. Our question we ask all of our guests: What does bankable mean to you? Oh, that's an interesting question. To me, bankable kind of means prepared and ready. You know, like you've you you've put it all together. You know what you're doing. 
you've got all the pieces and you're ready to go. Um, you're not missing X, Y, or Z. You don't need another $500,000 of funding, but you're, you're ready and you're there and, and people can rely on that. I think it's the reliance thing and, and trusting that you've got it all. Yeah. Um, you can yeah. do it, you can move it forward. You know what, and that's what I say, worth your time. That's yeah, worth the time. To me. Totally. <laughs> Movies Inc. The Business of Film is a podcast produced and hosted by us, Sarah McFarlane and Charlotte Howley. Our music is Pixel Drips by Marvig. Please visit our website at moviesincpod.com. Follow us on Instagram at moviesincpod and follow, subscribe and review the Movies Inc. podcast wherever you get your podcasts.